appreciate Kyle leading uh, farther along uh, just a moment ago. I, I really appreciate uh, Kyle and, and Stephen and whoever leads us uh, in, in worship. They always check in uh, with the particular text and do their best uh, uh, to plan hymns that uh, are appropriate and uh, seem to, to promote the theme that we uh, maybe are pursuing from the pulpit on a particular uh, Sunday. And I'm one, I'm one of these, these guys, I don't like telling the worship leader what to do. I don't like them telling me what to do. So why should I, you know, feel good about telling them uh, what to do? But occasionally I'll have a suggestion or two. And, and farther along, I, I think especially fits the theme of the psalm that we want to study this morning. Farther along sings of life's perplexities for the faithful of God. We're not exempt from crises. We experience difficulties in our lives. And, and often it's very discouraging when, when maybe we're experiencing a difficult time we, we really don't know why, we, we don't understand, and, and we look around us, and, and even though we, we know we shouldn't, we see someone who is not a person of faith, and everything looks great in their life. You know, we began this series of sermons from the book of Psalms by, by making the point that we usually approach Scripture as God's Word to us. And, and certainly, Psalms can be categorized as God's Word for us. But maybe more than any other large section of Scripture, the Psalms also gives us language to speak to God. Because they are written by real people experiencing real life just as we do. And the psalm we want to study this morning really gives us some language when, when we are experiencing one of those difficult times in our lives. You know, Job struggles with the affliction of the righteous or asks the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Our psalm this morning grapples with the prosperity of the unrighteous and asks this question, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, we're talking about Psalm 73. So please turn uh, to Psalm 73. And we're going to see this morning that Psalm 73 addresses this struggle of unfairness in the world and the confusion and the doubt it can create in our spiritual lives. And I, I love the way this psalm concludes. When apparently Asaph says, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And that's the goal for us this morning. As a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus, 
regardless of what we might be experiencing, regardless of wherever we might be in our life, that we can boldly proclaim and confess that we have made the sovereign Lord our refuge. Before we jump into the text itself, let me share three things about Psalm 73. First of all, Psalm 73 is the first psalm in book three of the Psalms. Now, we, we may not even realize that the book of Psalms is actually comprised of five books. In fact, if you have your Bible open to Psalm 73, if you look up at uh, verse 20 of Psalm 72, you'll see this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Well, that verse in Psalm 72 uh, concludes book two. But Psalms is divided into five books, uh, chapters 1 through 41, 42 through 72, 73 through 89, 90 through 106, and then book 5 of the book of Psalms, Psalms 107 through 150. In each book, if you will, or the last verse of each of those final uh, Psalms concludes with some kind of doxology. In the Psalms in each book, they often vary in preference for the divine name. And yet, it's really impossible to know why the Psalms are divided where they are. Uh, the typical suggestion is that the five books of Psalms may correspond to the five books of Moses, or the first five books of the Old Testament, books of the law, the Pentateuch. The second thing I would want to say about Psalm 73, if you'll notice, it is one of several psalms that has an inscription, which you might remember uh, when we first encountered an inscription, said that uh, the inscriptions are actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text. But the inscription says that Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. Well, Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 through 83 are Asaph Psalms. We know from 1 Chronicles chapters 15, 16, and 25 that Asaph was a Levitical music leader for King David. And so all of these Psalms that uh, have this inscription uh, attached to it were either composed by Asaph or handed down within the choir that took his name. The third and final thing that I want to say about uh, Psalm 73 is this. Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann, who I mentioned before, he's one of my favorite primarily because I love to pronounce his last name, Brueggemann. He's of German descent, as you might uh, expect. But in his study of the Psalms, he classifies uh, the Psalms in one of three ways. There are, first of all, what he calls Psalms of orientation, Psalms which speak of peace, Psalms which speak of prosperity of God's people. The second is what he classifies as Psalms of disorientation, Psalms which express doubt, 
Psalms which express despair, maybe even uh, disappointment. And then the third category, he says, is Psalms of reorientation in which the writer is, is experiencing a time of renewal, has been through a period of disorientation and now is experiencing peace once again, perhaps being reconciled uh, to God. Well, Brueggemann classifies Psalm 73 as a psalm of disorientation because, in, we'll see in just a moment, the largest section of this psalm, Asaph, uh, the psalmist, will speak of doubt, will speak of despair, will even speak of some disillusionment that he is experiencing in his life as he writes this Psalm. In fact, Brueggemann says this, We come now to what may be the most remarkable and satisfying of all the psalms. The very process of the psalm itself shows the moves made in faith into, through, and out of disorientation into new orientation, which is marked by a joyful uh, trust. This psalm is an act of faith. Well, theologian John Golden Gay agrees when he says Psalm 73 is a high point in the Psalter. Now think about that. Uh, the testimony of these two Old Testament scholars, these two Old Testament theologians, Psalm 73 is one of the primary psalms in the entire book. And so it is certainly uh, worthy of our consideration this morning. Well, let's go uh, to, to the psalm itself. And in uh, studying this psalm and in preparing for this particular uh, sermon, I, I discovered several different ways that you can outline or structure this particular uh, psalm. I've chosen to put the psalm into four sections, and so this is the outline uh, I would suggest. Uh, this portion of our lesson will be brought to us by the letter P, if you're filling out an outline. Verse 1, the premise of the psalm declared, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The psalm opens with its conclusion and begins with a particle of assurance and emphasis. The NIV chooses the word surely. If you go look at other trans English translations, you'll see words like uh, truly or indeed. Uh, the idea is the psalmist, Asaph, as he thinks about the goodness of God, he begins with a yes, God is good. And so he states this general truth, one that he has uh, experienced in his life. But who is God good to? Well, he says God is good to Israel and more specifically to the pure of heart. And so purity is to be the vocation of God's 
people. So as Asaph begins this psalm, he begins with this premise that God is good. But then in verses 2 through 14, we find the problem stated. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. So even though Asaph has begun this psalm with the premise that God is good, his personal experience suggests otherwise. Because we might say, as he looks around in his uh, attempt to be as faithful as he can be, and yet experiencing all these difficulties in his life, he looks around and he sees the faithless or the ungodly flourishing. And so his personal experience does not jive with the assumed tradition. And what is the assumed tradition? You obey God and you will be blessed. And you disobey God, you will be punished. And so this basic tradition is being put to the test in Asa's life. The faithless seem to flourish, the faithful seem to suffer. This suggests one of two things that either God blesses the faithless or affirms that God is irrelevant. And so Asaph is being tempted to live by, by this very pragmatic tradition rather than by faith. But now we come to verse 15. And as logical as this might appear, he cannot live this way. Faith is going to eventually win out. And so in verses 15 through 17, we find this pivotal moment in Asaph's life. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till... I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And so as he is wrestling in the, this thinking of doubt and confusion, as he is beginning to question 
God's relevance in his life. He comes to this pivotal moment. A decisive time arrives. A turn in perspective occurs. An about face, we might say, transpires, and it occurs when he enters the sanctuary of God. Which, depending upon the exact time this psalm was written, if indeed by Asaph, it would have been the tabernacle. If it was later by one of Asaph's descendants, a part of his choir, it could have been Solomon's temple. Regardless, it represents entering the presence of God. And so going into the sanctuary gives Asaph a new perspective. Now, it would be interesting to me to know exactly what happened when he entered the sanctuary. Was it an occasion or a time of public worship? Was it just going into the sanctuary uh, for a time of solitude and meditation? Was it to receive counsel from a priest? Again, whatever it was, it changed the psalmist's perspective and gave him the proper understanding of life. And so we come to verse 18. And throughout the rest of the psalm, we see this progression of faith. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has, has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful uh, to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds." When he enters the sanctuary, when he experiences uh, or encounters God, he begins to understand, verses 18 through 20, the ultimate destiny of the wicked. He then, in verses 21 and 22, uh, confesses the bitterness that he had in his heart, the doubt, the lack of faith in the moment. Verses 23 and 24, he begins uh, to clarify what he is now learning and understanding, and the psalm concludes with this very powerful testimony of commitment that he has made the sovereign Lord his refuge. So how many of us have been there 
How many of us can relate to the message of this psalm? This, this struggle that Asaph has been going through in his life. We, we've tried to remain faithful. We, we've been as committed as we can be, and yet, seems like every time we turn around, here we go again. Disappointment, discouragement, some kind of crisis, and doubt again arises. The reality is, if, if you are like, like me, I sometimes fall in to that, that, that trap of, of that uh, traditional worldview. If you're good, God will bless you. If you're bad, God will punish you. Guys, those of you who golf, how, how many times have you been on the golf course and you're facing a 800-foot putt and, and somehow you make it and someone in your group says, you must be living right. Anybody? I mean, can, can you relate? I got paired up with a gentleman uh, that I didn't know the other day. And for me, I made a pretty, a pretty long putt. It was every bit of 12 feet. <clears throat> and he congratulated me on making uh, the, the putt. It was, it, was, it was a little more difficult. It had a big break in it. I will, I will share that. And I said, well, I said my prayers this morning. You see, I, I fell, right into, fell right into the trap. So what are some things that, that we can learn from this particular psalm to, to, to help us? Again, gives us language, gives us understanding when life simply isn't fair. Now, if we have been bad, we understand. We kind of get it. It's what we deserve, right? But when we're being faithful and things still happen, what can we learn from this psalm? Number one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Matthew 5, verse 8. One of the Beatitudes that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with. To be pure in heart is to be honest and transparent before God. As if we can be any other way. Right? To be pure in heart is to be morally upright. The pure in heart exhibit a single-minded devotion to God. It doesn't mean we are perfect. It, it doesn't mean we never make a mistake. It, it doesn't mean that we too go through times of doubt. In, in fact, I, I, would, I would suggest, and I think you see this, in, the, in this particular psalm. There's a big difference in unbelief and doubt. And, and I would almost say, if you're not human if you haven't doubted. And, and so let God work with you. 
And so to be pure in heart is is this this attitude of honesty before God. And again, this psalm gives us the language through which we can be very honest. And then it pursues in uh, to a life of of action for God. Anytime you see... Uh, read Psalm 23, or excuse me, 73. You, you do a study of the Beatitudes uh, in, in this particular psalm. Usually, the commentator will take you back to Psalm 24, which reads, this, this psalm is attributed to David. The earth is the Lord, Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live it, uh, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And then David asks this question, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, he answers the question. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not trust in an idol. So you can see why Jesus attaches this wonderful blessing, uh, probably reflecting on Psalm 24. Jesus would have certainly uh, known it. They will enjoy this intimacy with God in his presence. They will be welcomed upon his holy hill. So blessed are the pure in heart. Secondly, cardiac care is vital. Now, our doctors encourage us to take care of our physical heart. And so we, we exercise, we occasionally eat right, we limit our salt intake, you know, all, all those kinds of, of, of things. Do we take the spiritual condition of our heart just as seriously? The word heart is one of the key words in Psalm 73. If you go back, you can count it. One, two, three, four, five, and I think it's used twice in one verse. Six times. Six times. And and so the importance spiritually of taking care of our heart. You know, one one of the, the things that Asaph mentions that he wrestled with during this time of disorientation was bitterness. Now, if that, that's a heart disease. And, and so if we're, we're struggling with bitterness, deal with it. Take care of it. And whatever is troubling your heart. Be sure you're taking just as good care of your spiritual heart as you are your physical heart. Number three, be careful not to lose your footing. Go back to verse two. After stating the premise and the way the psalm will conclude, he then gets very honest and Asaph says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Uh, A couple of months ago, um, Cardinals were playing the Rangers down in Arlington. So my dad came down and I took him to a couple of those ball games. And I, I had not been out with my dad in quite a while. And he, he, he struggles to walk. Uh, he, he moves at a very slow pace now. 
And on Saturday, it rained. And, and so the, the concrete and some of the tile in the stadium uh, became very slick. And my brother had driven down from Ada with a couple of his grandsons and had met us to go to the game. And, and so the game ends. It's pouring down rain. We had already seen a couple of, of people just, their feet went right out from underneath them. And so for the first time in, in my life, I, I experienced my dad holding on to me from the second level all the way down through the, the stadium and out to the parking lot. I scared to death because I knew if he fell, I was going to fall too. You know, instead of one broken hip, there were going to be two broken hips. And so we have encouraged my dad to secure his footing by using a cane. So my sister thinks, okay, he, he refuses to use a cane, but if I order him one from the Louisville Slugger Company, and by the way, Louisville Slugger has made baseball bats forever. And so she found on the internet you can... Um, you know, order these personalized, custom-made canes. And so she sends in his, his height, his weight, has it inscribed. It kind of looks like a baseball bat. Gives it to him for Father's Day. Well, my old bedroom is his man cave. And it's, it's full of cardinal paraphernalia with his, you know, his 80-foot big screen TV in there that he watches every game on. And he, he opens it up and he says, wow, Risa, this is going to look good in the cardinal room. <laughs> and he still hasn't used it. And, and so, again, spiritually speaking, we have to be sure our footing is secure. You know, Lori and I are about to head off on, on vacation. We're going to do a lot of hiking, so she says. And, and so we've both purchased some, some new hiking shoes. She got boots, I got shoes. Uh, to, to help us secure our footing. And, and so again, as, as you think about your spiritual life and our spiritual walk with our Lord, you know, we can lean on His shoulder. He provides pretty secure footing, doesn't He? Much better footing than what I could provide for my dad. So as we go out in life, be careful not to lose your footing. Number four, and this is where the 1 John 2 text comes in. Commitment to the world and commitment to God cannot coexist. I think Asaph implies as he works through his progression of faith. That, that he had gotten in, into that trap of what we might call, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Not Kyle and Monica necessarily, but, you know, that, you know the phrase. You know, we, we look at our neighbor and we see a new car. And, and we're driving something with 300,000 miles on it. And, and so we start thinking, come on, God. You know, and, and so Asaph... He just got off track a little bit. And, and, he, and he got caught up in, in a materialistic world. 
in which he, again, had, had kind of decided that's the way God blesses us. You know, if we're good, if we're faithful, we'll get a new boat. I, I've wanted a new bass boat all my life. Still haven't got, well, I have one, but it's only 12 feet long and about four feet wide, you know. And you can only put a trolling motor on it. I'm not complaining. Catch a lot of fish out of that little boat. But again, re remembering a text like 1 John 2 and, and just how powerful that allurement can be. And so guarding our eyes and guarding our, you know, the old VBS, VBS song, be careful little feet where you go and be careful little eyes what you see and be careful little hands what you do. I've forgotten all the verses. It's been so long. Number five, so rather than focusing on, on the world and, and getting overcome with worldliness, focus on Jesus. And that's exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, uh, 12 in verse 2. And so during Asaph's season of doubt, he had focused on the faithless rather than on God. And so we come to the book of Hebrews, and as these Christians uh, are being tempted uh, to maybe abandon their faith in Christ and look elsewhere for their salvation, the writer says, fix our eyes on Jesus. Focus on Him. It's, it's interesting that that little phrase, fix your eyes uh, on Jesus, is literally looking away from unto and so the idea is you're, you're looking at something, in our context, you're looking at the world and you, you make a decision, it's very intentional, to look away from the world and to Jesus. And so focusing with Him. Number six, connect with God. All right, everybody, you look to your left, I think. I look to my right. Yeah, look to your left. What does it say, the first banner? Connect with God, the very first important point of our vision. And if you recall, to connect with God begins in, in worshiping Him. All right, and, and, and you're back to verse 17 when Asaph entered the sanctuary. All right. Now, I don't, I don't want anyone to, to misunderstand me. Right? I understand this facility in which we sit or stand this morning is not the church. You are the church. I am the church. We are the church. All right? but, but I think we, we have lost something of a concept of sacred space. And, and I, would, I would like to think that when... When, when we come into this place, it represents entering the presence of God and we are in a sacred space. I, I have told this story. Her name will remain uh, anonymous. You know, 20, anybody remember what was going on 20 years ago? It was 1999. Anybody remember? Y2K, exactly. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of us were putting extra bottles of water 
in our private closets and uh, we, we were investing in the latest computers because, you know, once it hit 2000, all computers were going to be erased and everybody remember that. All right. So as we're getting close to Y2K, I was preaching for uh, the Westwood congregation in Edmond. And Lori and, and our family, we had planned to be away on uh, December 31st that year. So we were not even going to be in Edmond. But this dear sister came up to me and she said, you know, I, I don't really think there's anything to this Y2K thing, but just in case, do you think we could plan a New Year's party at the building you know, as, as if, 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 if indeed the Lord was going to come again, if we were in, in the Westwood facility, we were going to heaven, you know, or whatever. Right? But, but it kind of it illustrates, at least for her, there, there was something kind of sacred about that space. Right? And, and so our challenge th this morning is, is to especially connect with God corporately when we come together. There is something that I think happens when we worship together. At least it should happen. I mean, Jack Reese used to teach that uh, if you go to an assembly and you don't leave changed, then you haven't worshipped. And, and so one byproduct of honoring God and praising God is we leave this place changed. And, and so maybe, maybe, you know, as we're working through our week and we're experiencing discouragement and disappointment and despair and even doubt, this is the place, this is the time to return to week after week after week. And it almost seems so rote, so ritual, that we forget just how important the assembly is and what can happen when we are together. So connect with God. Certainly do it privately during the week. I'm not saying don't do that. Right? But just make, uh, make the Sunday morning corporate assembly even more important uh, in your life. And then finally, number seven, don't give up on God. You know, the evidence shows it isn't worth it. And we may not understand everything now but farther along we'll know all about it Asaph does something I think intentional in this psalm two times he uses the word good he uses it in verse 1 in saying God is good and he uses it in the final verse when he says, you know, because God is good, it is good for me to be near God. I like a guy that thinks logically. So God is good, so it's, it's, it's good for us then to be near to God. And so that's the question this morning. Are you near to God? And, and be assured, be assured, when doubts arise and discouragement occurs 
and we even reach a point of despair, God is still good. He's always good. And even though we may not fear, feel near to him at the moment, he is near to us. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's not like Elvis. He hasn't left the building. He is right here. How near are you to God this morning? Let's stand and sing.